moving into a new series that is all about how God has called us to renewal. Christ, culture, and community. And it's what Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, teaches us about renewal. And one of the things that we're trying to do as we've been establishing this church and in this community is how has God called us to rebuild? How has God called us to restore and renew where we are? This is going to be a challenge, but this is also going to be the, the full cause of what we are doing all of 2024. So we'll be preaching a series of sermons that are helping us realize what our cultural calling is, what our creative calling is, and what our calling to Christ and community is, and what the Lord wants us to do. And so we'll be reading out of Nehemiah, and today we're going to be reading out of Nehemiah chapter 1. So if you would go with me to uh, Nehemiah 1, we're going to read the entirety of that text, and we're going to talk about what the Lord is calling us to do as a people and as a church. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as, it, as I was in Susa, the citadel, to that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your, outcast, though you, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare our hearts and prepare our minds to talk about what the challenge is for pastoring for being a part of a church, for being a Christian in 2024, Lord, help us know that the work that you have called us to do, God, it takes the Holy Spirit, it takes repentance, 
It takes dedication. It takes compassion. It takes love. It takes a devotion to the word of God. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts, God, prepare our hands, prepare our feet to do the work that you have called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ, culture, and community. What Nehemiah teaches us about renewal with this first sermon being repent to rebuild. So if you don't know this, in the 1980s, there was a heavy gang presence on the south side of Philadelphia. And much of those areas were drug controlled by these gangs in these specifically poor black neighborhoods. Now, this was led mostly by a rather infamous drug dealer whose name was actually Stoney Green. For about seven years, Stoney and his gang members gutted that community. And many young black men lost their lives as a result of these turf wars that were led by Stoney Green and his gang. For about seven years, he and his gang members almost wiped out all that population of young black men, whether that was because they were thrown in jail or because many of them ended up in the grave. Stoney, however, staying free, built himself a bit of a financial nest egg, but he had built that on the back of his own community. Now, after he nearly destroyed that community, something unbelievable happened. Stoner came to Christ. He came to Christ, and as a result of him coming to Christ, he knew that he needed to leave his city and leave the place that he had been so that he could restart his life, so that he could go and not have the ramifications of the reputation that he had built in his former city. And while doing that, he had done well for himself. And he had made a name for himself. Actually, he had made a name with his actual name, not Stoney, but James. And at one point, he had even become the chief of staff of a neighboring major city for the mayor. And in a meeting one day, they mentioned that his hometown was nearly a ghost town because of the crime and the things that had happened in the past. Now, this was about 20 years later, but his hometown had actually never recovered. Learning this, he actually submits that maybe they should help this neighboring city out by providing it with resources and volunteers. And he even says that I'll be hands-on in the work. I'll go do the work myself. And as he does this, he went around building houses. He was restoring homes. He was bringing fresh business. And as he went to restore the home, of an elderly lady, she actually greeted him with a smile. And when he shook her hand, she stared him right in his eyes and said, Stoney, is that you? To which he said, well, ma'am, I hadn't heard that name in about 20 years. I actually go by James now. He said, but yes, ma'am, that isn't me anymore. That's who I used to be. To which she said, I appreciate what you've been doing. I love how you've helped rebuild. But then she says, but I don't want a paintbrush to touch my house until I know that you've repented for what you did to this city. 
Y'all, this is the story of what happens today with what we see in the book of Nehemiah. And as much as it may be and seem unrelated to us, this is all directly connected to us. As we see in our text, we see a man in Nehemiah who is grieving and broken about his people, about his hometown. It is broken, and the people who had already survived being exiled still live like they were in exile. And Nehemiah feels what any reasonable person would feel if they saw a place they love being torn apart. He thinks to himself, I have to do something. He could not reasonably just let things stay the way they are. Therefore, he was motivated by his love for God and his love for people to rebuild Judah and Jerusalem. And I want you to notice some things that take place here that are going to be really important for us who feel like the Lord is calling us to a similar work. Even though Nehemiah no longer resides with his people, he still has compassion for his people. Y'all, contrary to conventional wisdom, compassion is not a character flaw. It is a virtue. It is Christ-likeness. And many times in Scripture, we see that Jesus was not just moved But the Bible makes it clear that he was moved by compassion. If you don't believe me, there's a few times in the text that we see that. Matthew 9, 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Luke 7, 13, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Our first point for today is compassion is Christlikeness. Compassion is Christlikeness. This is, by the way, Nehemiah's connection to Christ. He is moved with compassion for his people. And we may not realize just how significant that is, but we need to think about it. How would we have felt if when we looked in this text, the Bible says that Jesus moved out of obligation? Jesus being moved by pity. Most of us would not probably feel as ecstatic about Jesus doing what he did if he only did it because he felt obligated. Many of us knows what it feels like when somebody views you as a charity case and they're only doing what they do for you because they think you can't do any better. I don't think we would have felt any better if it said Jesus being moved out of obligation, Jesus being moved out of pity, met their needs. I don't think we would feel good about that. Compassion, however, is not rooted in sympathy, is not rooted in pity, is actually rooted in empathy. And that is to say that this struggle or this pain that this person is enduring, it may not be my own pain. 
And it may not be my own struggle, but I can feel it as if it were my own. Our whole message is about renewal. Our whole message is about redemption. And the reason that it doesn't often work is that too many of us are only serving and helping because we feel like that's what we pose to do as Christians. And what that does is it makes us detached robots who can do all the ministry stuff but feel no connection to the people we're doing it for. Robotically doing good deeds that have no heart and no passion behind them. Y'all, people notice that. Or, the other side is it, we have so much pity that we lose sight of the actual people and only see them as our next charity case to conquer. In both cases, whether you are moved by obligation or moved by pity, you're self-motivated. But what we see in Christ and what we see in Nehemiah is a compassionate heart. Compassion also makes us move. Compassion makes us do something. Nehemiah, who is in a place of notoriety, who is in a place of prestige, is willing to step out of that comfort zone to go to serve and rebuild, not just rebuild a city, but also rebuild a people and bring that people to restoration. Much of modern Christianity has been not about risking or taking care of other people or stepping out of our comfort zone, much of modern Christianity is about self-preservation. I don't care about preserving the broken people around me. How can I preserve self? How can I preserve my comfort? How can I avoid as much problematic human contact as possible? And that line of thinking has minimized the effectiveness of the church. It has because of many of us who are willing to do the compassionate jobs, unfortunately, many of us do that in a very transactional way. We as a church, by the way, in the middle of Tarrant, what looks to be desolate, what looks to be hopeless, we are actually in the middle of fertile ground. In this city, that looks like desolation to the world, actually looks like harvest to God. Isn't that ironic? Just so you see the picture, Nehemiah looks out at what is broken and he sees an opportunity to make it whole. He isn't just resigned to the fact, well, it's broken. But he sees an opportunity because he was made in the image of God. He wants to make whole that which is broken. Y'all, this is our calling in the world, by the way. We are not just passively in this city 
We are not just passively in the state of Alabama, passively a part of the United States or the world, but we have been called by the work of the gospel to bring wholeness to brokenness. So how do we do it? How does he address it? And where does he begin his work? That brings us to our second point. We must begin with prayer. First point, compassion is Christ-like. And it's the second one, if we're going to do this work, we must begin with prayer. Y'all, it is astonishing how often believers will leap to do work for the Lord and just assume that that is what God wants for us to do. Do you remember in the Old Testament, David, knowing that the temple actually had been long destroyed, thought it would be a good idea for him to rebuild the temple. He's like, yeah, the temple's destroyed. I, I need to rebuild it. That's the work the Lord has called me to do. Well, what actually happens when he consults with God about it? When well, 1 Chronicles 22 and 8, it says this, but the word of the Lord came to me, as David, saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. David, y'all, had a noble idea. Makes sense. It's practical. God needs a temple rebuilt. His people need a place to properly worship. And he wanted to take that work into his own hands. But the problem is when he went to God about taking that work in his own hands, God said, your hands are the problem. Yeah, I, I need the temple rebuilt. I want that work to be done. But, David, you can't be the one to do it. Listen, anything we intend on doing for the Lord, no matter the size of the task, one, it is a great work. Two, it requires prayer. I don't care what you think the work is. And many mistakes are made by well-meaning, good-intentioned Christians because we fail to pray. We fail to clarify, God, is this, is this actually what you want me to do? Even Jesus, before doing the greatest work known to man in giving his life for our sins, went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. Y'all, prayer is not the thing we do after we've made a decision. We love praying after we see things going wrong. Lord, if you would just. It is what we do even when we don't realize that a decision even needs to be made. I remember when I was in college, a group of missionaries had gone to Belize and they were doing mission work. And one of the things that they did in Belize is they went there and they built, for some reason, a basketball court. And that was an annual trip. And so they came back and then the next year they went. And when they went back a year later, they realized that that basketball court that they did in conjunction with mission work had been turned into a soccer field. 
Because they don't be playing basketball in Belize. They play football. And so, you know, all those people that came back, you know, they were like, we thought we had done this great thing. We thought our work was noble. It was good. It was well-meaning. But what they didn't realize is it didn't meet the need of the people in that context. And they took what they thought what made sense to them, what worked for them, what was valuable to them, and they projected that onto people that they said they were serving in the name of the Lord. And never once thought, is this even what the Lord wants us to do? Y'all, prayer gives us the sensitivity to know how to serve God's people in the way that he has created them. That's the point of prayer. I am not a cultural savant. I cannot move about the world and know everything about every context of person. It takes prayer and it takes consulting with God to know, am I the one that you've called or have you called somebody else who may be able to do this work better than me? Nehemiah has compassion. He is willing to leave his place of comfort, but before he does that, he consults with God. Chrissy always gets me with this, and I hate it. I'm glad she's in the kids' room. She can't hear that she's influencing my preaching. She always says, good intentions are not God intentions. You can be well-intended, you can be well-meaning, you can have a good idea, but that good idea doesn't mean that it is a God-ordained idea. Building the temple to David is a great thing, but it was for somebody else to do. I've seen so many times where churches and people with money and ministry see a need. And without consulting God or without consulting counsel who has context on that ministry about how to actually help, they leap into a work that the Lord may not have given them the grace to do. And because the money is so expendable, they continue to do the work as long as their money says that they can do it. None of our resources, none of our good intentions will ever trump the will of God. You believe the Lord has called you to do a work, pray. But don't just pray we also have to do the third thing that Nehemiah did. He repented and he interceded. He repented and he interceded. I want to go back to that part. He said, and now pray before you. I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned, we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. 
But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What Nehemiah actually does here, y'all, is twofold. But it is also an example for us. One, he acknowledges that much of what had happened to the people of Israel was not because they were innocent. It was not because they were benevolent. It was not because they were good. It was actually because they were guilty. Much of what had happened to them was a result of their sins. It was a result of it. But his compassion for them, we got to see this. His compassion for them does not make him overlook their sinfulness. One of the many mistakes I see people make in ministry is they forget that the people that God has called us to serve are still going to be sinners. I never forget, I've shared this before, but I remember working at another church of a particular demographic and a person had come in who was homeless. He was with his wife and his daughter. And he needed food, which we had an abundance of. And he came in, and I mean, we said, go shopping. He took bags and bags and bags and bags and bags. Now, the person who was over the pantry ministry actually was low in terms of mercy, which means they probably were not serving in the way God needed them to serve. And so when she walked past the man, and we had told her we had given him some groceries. Her comments were, well, he smells like smoke. Well, yeah, and does that negate the fact that he's hungry? Does that negate the fact that he has a need? See, what often happens is either we're too judgmental, and all we see is sin and we don't serve, or we're too grace-bent, And all we see is an opportunity to serve and don't acknowledge that this person still has sin. In order to do the work of God, y'all, there has to be balance. Of course, I know any person God calls us to serve, whether in this church or outside, was born a sinner. Just like me. My call to serve them is to serve them in a way that meets all the needs that they have, as much as it is up to me. And that's what I like about what Nehemiah does. He has balance in the rebuilding and doing this work. You can acknowledge the reason for somebody's condition and still be interested in renewing and restoring them. You can. You can acknowledge that person has an alcohol problem. You can acknowledge that person has an issue with this or that and still 
be interested in renewing, restoring, and rebuilding them. Their sin was a contributing factor to where they ended up in life. And before Nehemiah begins his work, he intercedes for them. He prays for them. He says, listen, some of these people have sinned, and I want you to understand, Lord, that I'm standing in for them. Because they don't even know that they should probably be praying. They don't even know the words to pray, so let me pray on their behalf. He says, I want to pray for them that they would repent. He stands in between. Who does that remind you of? It reminds me of Jesus on the cross interceding for the very people that he had come to save. And by the way, we aren't saving anyone. But we know that God has not called us to serve any sin-free people. Which means, though I'm not saving them, I can, in the image of Christ, intercede and pray for those people who may not even know that they need to pray. Jesus is on the cross being crucified, yet he says, Lord, but, but forgive them. Because of their sinfulness, they don't even know what they're doing. Of course, the people God has called us to aren't sin-free, but neither are we. And that is why after he intercedes, what does he do for himself? He repented of his sins. And this is actually not what Jesus had to do. Now, why if he feels noble enough to do this work, if he feels that God has called him to do the work, if he feels like the Lord has confirmed and qualified, this is the work I want you to do, Nehemiah, why does he repent? Because he knows that there is no good work that is done with completely clean hands. I don't care how good we feel our work is. I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, no matter my tears, there's always going to be some dirt in them. He repented of his sins. Because he knows that if I'm going to do this work, I have to make sure that my heart is clear and that my hands are clean as much as they can be. And he asks for grace and mercy from God to allow him to do this work. I know people make resolutions. I know that's a big thing, and I'm not even coming here to knock that because I think those can be very helpful. But I think a permanent resolution for all of us, not just beginning a year, we should be in this state of repentance, constantly. Repenting for sins I know I've committed, repenting for sins I don't know I've committed, so that when I'm doing this work and I say it's for God, that my eyes and my hands and my feet and my head and my spirit and my mind 
is clear. Before you begin, whatever work you feel like the Lord has called you to, whether that is how the Lord has called you to help our church in this mission of rebuilding and renewing Terran or whatever the Lord has called you to do. Before you begin the work, pray and repent. Pray and repent. Repentance is an acknowledgement, as far as I'm concerned, that I cannot do this work on my own or without God. If you don't repent, you think you're good. But nothing I build, if it's really God's, will be built without him. If I've learned nothing else in planning a church, nothing we do will be done well without God. So, as I close, whether you are building a family, whether you are building a community, whether you are building a career, whatever we feel the Lord has called us to do, these are the steps. You must have compassion. You must, in the face of it, be willing to pray and confirm that that's the Lord's calling for your life. And you must be willing to repent of your sins and intercede on behalf of others. And so what work has the Lord called you to do? Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the word. God, even in the midst of changing years and changing situations and scenarios and life, God, we know that you have called all of us to a work. And God, while many of us may feel gifted, we may feel independent, we may feel strong enough, talented enough to do it without you, God, there's nothing that we're going to do and do it well or do it great that will be done without you. God, I, I firmly believe in this fifth year of our church's existence that you have called us to a great work. God, I believe that renewal and redemption and restoration of this little community starts here in the place of victory. But God, it only can happen if we collectively join in on this mission and this work that we will live our lives feeling this compassion that we will, God, commit ourselves to prayer to figure out how you've called us to serve. And God, that we will be willing to constantly repent of our own sins and our own deeds and stand in the gap of a sinful and broken people and like Jesus did on the cross for us, pray for their forgiveness and repentance. Lord, whatever you have called us to do, However you have called us to do it, we believe that you will equip us 
that you will strengthen us to do this work. And we believe, Lord, that it will be done if it takes a year, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, if it's people who come behind us and and complete the work, God, we believe in what we're doing. And we are committing ourselves to you and this work. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.